It's Behind the Bots Time! This week on the podcast, we have two very special guests, Zoe Stevenson and Yasha Little. Zoe and Yasha are mechanical engineers at Applied Invention, an engineering firm that works on some really innovative projects. The most interesting, perhaps, is the 10,000-year clock, a mechanical object being built deep inside a mountain in Texas that's designed to survive and accurately tell time until the year 12,000 and probably beyond. BattleBots fans know Zoe and Yasha for Chomp, the only heavyweight in modern BattleBots to defeat three-time giant nut winner Bite Force. They're returning to the competition this season with a super heavyweight walker version of Chomp, the first walker since the original run of the show. We're really looking forward to exploring all of these topics in the hour ahead. So welcome to the show, Zoe and Yasha. Thank you. Nice to be here. We are so stoked to uh, to have you here. Um, getting you on the show has been one of our goals since the very beginning. When we sat down and decided we were going to start a podcast, Chomp was like at the very top. And uh, I feel like oh, wow. we had to kind of um, build up some street cred before we could uh, <laughs> even reach out. So um, having you on is, is really uh, a great pleasure and, and an honor for us. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. We're really flattered too. So. Yeah, um, because we have two of you and because um, I'm terrible at introductions, I was hoping maybe Zoe, uh, you could introduce Yasha and Yasha that you could uh, introduce Zoe. So uh, Zoe, do, do you want to start off and tell us who Yasha is? And, uh, sure. What, what, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Yasha, so full disclosure, uh, I'm married to Yasha and I think he's the cat's meow. Uh, but Yasha Little is a mechanical engineer who has had a whole wide range of jobs um, from like Jaguar mechanic to semiconductor uh, fabrication industry um, engineer. And uh, for the last many years has worked as a prototyping engineer at Applied Invention. Um, if you're excited about the 10,000 year clock, you're in luck because he is the lead engineer of that project. He has touched every single assembly uh, and designed designed many of the, the most important uh, pieces of that clock. So he's the person you want to talk to. And um, between the two of us, Yasha and I do most of the mechanical design for uh, our robot chomp. Amazing. And Yasha, could you, uh, could you introduce your, uh, your wife, Zoe? Absolutely. Uh, Zoe Stevenson is my absolutely wonderful wife and uh, partner on, on our uh, BattleBots team. She uh, is uh, younger than me, so I, I did BattleBots back in the day, in the early Comedy Central days, and um, she heard me and some of the other fellows that used to do it at, at Applied Invention talking about it, and she has provided the motivation for this new iteration of BattleBots building, which is great. Um, uh, she's the captain behind Chomp and uh, provides a lot of the motivation Although in the last year or so, we've had a lot of trouble getting things done since we are also starting a family. And I'm here to tell you that a uh, one-year-old child is not conducive to your combat robot building dreams. It's true. It's <laughs> true. Um, well, congratulations. I, I think that that's fantastic. Um, I, I'd like to talk about something else, like kind of wondrous that you're working on. Um, so uh, the 10,000-year clock, this is, um, this is a project that... I've been interested in ever since I read about it. And it was it was actually the 
impetus for us to start this show because we were looking into the the backgrounds of of the captains and we got to Xander Rose. I think we were going alphabetically, so you know we got to B and um, for Bronco and looking at it and the clock was just so cool. Uh, like it's it's an art project. It's a um, it's like a statement about humanity. It's a massive engineering challenge um, and kind of our thesis was all of the builders are interesting and, and cool. Um, and that's very flattering of you. Thank you. It's been, uh, like we haven't been proven wrong yet. So like every single person we've talked to is really cool, but like, we're super stoked to talk about this clock. Um, I wanted to, to start off by reading an excerpt of the official description of the clock to kind of like, I don't know, get us hyped. Um, and then ask you about it. So, uh, this is from, from the website. The clock is in the mount. The clock that is in the mountain will be monumental almost architectural in scale. It will be roughly 200 feet tall, located under a remote limestone mountain near Van Horn, Texas. It will require a day's hike to reach its interior gears. Just reaching the entrance tunnel situated 1,500 feet above the high scrub desert will leave some visitors out of breath, nicked by thorns, and wondering what they got themselves into. Um, Love the description. It's amazing. Um, Mm. I guess, first off, can you describe the clock for somebody who hasn't seen the prototype um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's huge, right? Yeah. So do you want, do you want me to go or do you want to do it? You go and then I'll chime in. Yeah. The, yeah. The clock is, is absolutely, uh, enormous. It's, um, the full mechanism is probably 600 vertical feet. Um, there are some gaps in there. It's not 600 feet of solid stuff, but visiting the clock in, involves about 600 feet of vertical, uh, climbing and seeing clock components um so and a lot of that's actually a, installed yeah ima- imagine a vertical bore in the mountain it's it's like 12 or 13 feet in diameter and there's a spiral staircase cut up around the bore and so there's this it's this long vertical clock um installed uh, inside that vertical bore it sounds to me like a project <clears throat> of this size is what really makes you tick oh, my God. <laughs> oh man he was waiting for that one <laughs> um yeah it's actually the project really has become a big part of my engineering career uh i could i could introduce the the story of how it all got started for me if you want yeah absolutely please do uh hopefully you'll have xander on sometime so he can fill in the gaps but basically i was uh an engineer working in my hometown of austin texas uh almost 15 years ago and xander xander who i knew through battlebots contacted me and said you know you should uh you know, we're, I work for the Long Now Foundation, and we're trying to get this this ten thousand year clock built, and we're kind of working on funding for it. And uh, we're having this company down in L.A. run by Danny Hillis uh, work on some of the engineering, just the initial engineering. He's like, "You should move out there; they'll totally hire you." And I, I said, "I don't want to go to L.A. Screw that." Um, but uh, eventually, I got coaxed into into, into doing that, largely because of the shop we can use at, at the at the company. But anyway, I moved out there and started working on some of the early iterations of clock stuff, just doing science, uh, cycle testing and building little prototypes and mechanisms and thinking the whole time, like, this is never going to be like a, a real whole clock. Like, it's too expensive. And then eventually the clock project got full funding. And, um, you know, over a decade later, we're still working on it and it's becoming very real. We're actually putting parts in the mountain, spent many, many weeks out north of Van Horn in the middle of nowhere on those uh, rocky trails that they talked about in the description, getting thorns and stuff. 
but uh, yeah, it's it's become a big part of my engineering career. I I love the clock because it forces us to think much more long term than we think about today. You know, um, today we know that in twenty years from now, uh, the world is going to be very different. Technology is going to be very different. Like our kids are going to grow up in a really different kind of generation than we are in. Um, but when you start to think of about time in terms of like a thousand years or 2000 years or 10,000 years, you know, like to the year 12,000, like you really kind of think further out, like your horizon is, is much further. Um, you know, like, can you, can you talk about some of the engineering challenges of designing something that's supposed to outlast the pyramids? You know, like what, what, what are, what are some of the, um, the, the kind of technical challenges that, that you had to work through? I think, I mean, corrosion is one of the biggest ones, uh, you know, you need to make it out of affordable materials and uh, that kind of limits you to, to metals for a lot of structures and you don't want those things to rust away. So uh, corrosion resistance is a big one. And then you get into subtler problems when you want uh, things to survive, you know, 10 million, 100 million, 1 billion cycles of wear. And, and then you look at the materials you've uh, narrowed it down to that can tolerate the corrosion and you realize, oh man, wear resistance and corrosion resistance are kind of diametrically opposed in metals. So uh, basically not, the, the metals that you would use uh, are very friction-y. When you, when you have a sliding surface like you might in two years between each other um, and you have to make it out of corrosion resistant materials, you get a lot of friction, which is the opposite of what you want in a gearbox. And you don't have uh, lubrication is not really, you know, we, we kind of decided there is no 10,000 year lubrication solution. You know, and there's no oil that'll last that long or grease that'll last that long or oil pump that'll last that long. And there's no electric, there's, we, there's no electronics in the clock. There's no, there's no pumps. There's no motors. It's all, it's all mechanical systems. Um, so a lot of the problems we're solving corrosion, wear, and also how to do things without servo motors and do things without computers and do things without batteries. Uh, a lot of looking at uh, patents from hundreds of years ago, because people were way better at this back in the era of, you know, naval chronometers and Harrison, you know, over in England, solving all these difficult timing problems with just brass. Um, There's nothing soft that will last. All your damping has to be done with, with you know, bellows, bellows full of purified water and, and um other other clever tricks to make everything out of metal or ceramic. Yeah, ceramics is a real uh, ceramics are much more difficult to manufacture than metals, but uh, engineering ceramics are kind of what we have gone to for the really critical wear surfaces. That's that's the uh, they're both corrosion resistant and wear resistant. Uh, they're just you know miserable to manufacture. You have to use diamond tooling, etc. And in addition to just like choosing different materials you know, some of the like actual, you know, pieces are different than they would be otherwise. So for instance, uh, the style of gear that you're most likely to see that you've seen a million times um, that's in production, you know, nowadays in places that, you know, can fill their gearbox full of grease or oil is the involute gear. Uh, it has a lot of manufacturing advantages. However, that gear has sliding friction in it in a way that another type of gear, which is called a cycloidal gear, which you can make with with rolling interfaces wouldn't have wouldn't have sliding friction. If you can 
if you can take your friction from sliding, like imagine, you know, pushing something along the ground to, to rolling, you know, you put it on wheels, your, your friction goes down very dramatically orders of magnitude. So many, many design changes um, have been made to make sure that we can use rolling friction instead of sliding friction. This is probably a dumb question, but I feel like uh, it's kind of fundamental to the project, but like, what is the purpose of the clock? Xander would definitely be the man to give the proper answer to <laughs> no, that, I, but I, we, I, we, we know what it is. It, it is to foster long-term thinking. It's to make people think about yeah. those things you mentioned earlier, like why it's such an interesting project, because people don't think on that kind of time scale and, you know, people ought to consider whether or not we're going to be good ancestors, you know, hopefully, you know, you don't want to be the period of time that people look back at in a thousand years and wonder, good Lord, why did they ruin the whole planet? Right. That um, was it's, it's worth giving thought to. Yeah. yeah. I think also there's just sort of an engineering reason, which is, which is maybe less uh, noble. I don't know. Maybe it's not. We can do this. It's a really hard problem, but we can, we can probably do this. And we've, in a lot of ways, stopped trying to do, stop trying to solve really hard problems that aren't like selling ads on social media. We're really good at that. Okay, we devote a lot of resources to that. But we've, we don't have that many projects that are like building a cathedral. Like, what's the most beautiful building that we can build, even if, we'll t- if it will take, you know, hundreds of people working on it, and it will, it will you know take a lot of resources let's just try and do this thing that's really hard we probably can build a machine that will last for ten thousand years and how cool would it be to have done that as humans like let's try and do this really hard thing for the sake of doing the hard thing right right i think it's interesting because you know just given the nature of consumerism and products in this day and age things are built to last for like you, you have to throw out your phone every two years you have to throw out right. your television it stops working after every four years and to just like say no to that and build something that is going to last so far beyond our lifetimes it's hard for a lot of people to even really fathom how long that is it's such a it's such a cool and unique project thank you um I, I was looking at um, at the team roster working on the clock, some of the engineers, and it's so interesting that uh, there's so many BattleBots builders that are working on this clock. You know, is that a coincidence blame, or blame Xander? Yeah. It's, it is. It's not a coincidence. It's Xander uh, looking for engineers that he knew to come work on the clock project, and uh, we sort of just collected. And then and then I was around all these folks, and they were starting BattleBots up again. And a lot of them were saying, oh, you know, I, I've got kids now or just I'm older. I don't have the disposable income. I don't have the time. I, I can't build a robot. Yasha was in the middle of another robotics competition. Um, and everyone was sort of talking about it. And I thought, well, maybe I, maybe I could do that. You know, if, if none of these folks that they want to have come back um, are free, then maybe they'd take me. And they did. So... I imagine that outside of the clock, this is not the only cool project or thing that you, you're involved in building. Um, so outside of, of this 10,000 year clock and Chomp, what are some of your favorite engineering projects that you've been a part of? Um, it's not very, uh, it's not very different. Well, it's a little different, but before 
this version of BattleBots returned, I was deeply involved with the uh, NASA sample return rover challenge. That was five or six years of uh, a different kind of robotics, less violent, more difficult, um, uh, fully autonomous uh, robots that had to complete tasks without any human intervention uh, in an effort to develop uh, basically uh, planetary rovers, you know, rovers that can operate on other on other planets without human intervention for every step like they currently do for the mars missions and also without gps which i think is a big a big uh, help so you know we are at the forefront of you know maybe someday soon autonomous cars but those have these big aids <clears throat> of, um, like the gps cloud and they have maps and they can th use those tools to really help them figure out where they think that you are uh, and make sure you don't get lost and those don't exist on the moon and mars yeah, Earth's magnetic field is actually remarkably handy as well. Good static yaw reference that you lose on Mars and the Moon. So that's one. I um, it's not an engineering project, uh, but I lead a Girl Scouts troop. Aww. Uh, I guess we do we do do like a Pinewood Derby race, so so we do that. Um, yeah, outside of uh, outside of the clock project and, and uh, BattleBots, there is not a lot of room for other engineering projects. I'm surprised we've we've done anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've gotten to work. the The company that we work at does sort of prototyping engineering. Um, a lot of it is is pretty private, so we don't want to you know talk a whole lot about it. But it is nice um, to do prototyping because you you get to experience a lot of different things and try your hand at a lot of different things and kind of get it from napkin sketch stage to the first mostly working one and then try something new. I think this is a good segue to our next question because so much of what, you know, the both of you are working on is kind of, you know, new, new territory and, and how to design for something that you don't necessarily have, you know, examples to, to base it off of yet. So what do you need to be a good engineer on experimental type projects, products? People to bounce your ideas off of. The creativity, which is not necessarily an aspect of all engineering, but uh, to do prototype work, you need more creativity than I would say other, other fields of engineering. Lots of napkins. Lots of napkins. Yeah, lots of napkins. Having seen a lot of things is really helpful. So there's a conference that we try to go to um, in Chicago every two years. That's a giant manufacturing conference. And we just, you know, go through the halls and look at all the sorts of ways that people make things. And some of those we have in our shop and we've seen what they can do, but a lot of them we don't have. And just, just seeing the ways that people do stuff and getting that into your brain is important. I, yeah, definitely. And another another thing that we do at our company that is not nearly as common in the world of engineering is we have our mechanical engineers actually make a lot of the stuff, yeah. which is part, part of the reason why it's, it's possible for us to work on such complicated robots like CHOMP. Um, I think that engineers that make their own parts uh, tend to be able to prototype more effectively uh, they can iterate faster because they're not, they don't have to wait for an external shop to produce all their parts, which has a pretty long turnaround time. You know, for the clock, we do have a lot of shops to make our parts because we don't have a, a milling machine that can do eight foot diameter parts. And, you know, so <laughs> you have to wait a couple months to get those parts. And uh, when you're making prototypes, it's really nice to be able to just go to the machine and have a part in a day and uh, see if it works. 
And you know, 3D printing is a thing, but if you really, if you're 3D printing works sometimes, but if you're trying to test, uh, you know, mechanisms that are under any serious stress or strain, uh, nothing beats machining parts out of say aluminum. Or you want it to be precise or the other thing about learning to machine is you are less likely to design something that's unmakeable. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really uh, a good point. And it's just interesting how many fields it sounds like within engineering, you know, come together to, to, you know, create this. Um, uh, so I guess moving on now to uh, learn a little bit more about your start in combat robotics, we would love to find out about how you came to learn about combat robotics in the first place. So we'll have different answers to that. Mine is working in this workplace that sort of because of the way that the clock got staffed was was full of BattleBots builders and sort of just being around those folks and being around a place that you know worked on robotics projects professionally um but but yasha will have a different answer yeah if i remember correctly i was i saw an advertisement for robot wars uh in wired magazine hmm. back in the 90s and uh my dad thought it sounded cool too and so he he took me out to san francisco to watch robot wars i think in 96 or so and um we thought, man, we should build robots to fight at these events for sure. <laughs> we were immediately hooked. And uh, and I, I think I, I got a really terrible one done for a, a BattleBots event in Long Beach in 99. It was such an embarrassing robot that I immediately, <laughs> immediately cut it back apart and thought, okay, time to start again. And that's when I made the judge. Uh, so, so what were the first robots that you built? I know you just kind of got into to yours, but can you tell us a little bit about them? For some reason, I immediately thought hammers were a good idea. And so I tried to build a hammer for 99. I think the robot was called the Juggernaut. It was electrically powered, which is a, which is a, it was a pretty decent name. It was a terrible robot. Um, I didn't, like a lot of engineering projects, I jumped in without enough calculation, which is a, which is a thing I have a tendency to do because I like building things, but uh, calculation definitely has its place in the world of engineering. Uh, I made an electrically powered hammer, and if you and if you really get in and look at the energetics between uh, electrical and pneumatic systems, it just becomes very clear that uh, pneumatics is the only way to go to power a hammer. Sorry, John Reed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's made a he's made the most impressive electrical hammer I think possible, but uh, you can just exceed that energy in order of magnitude with the pneumatic system quite easily. And so uh, after the juggernaut, I. And we got went back to the drawing board and started getting into pneumatics, and that's why I made the judge with a pneumatically driven hammer. Zoe, what about you? My first robot that was mine was Chomp. I helped in a very small capacity on the the Sampor Turn robot that that Yasha was talking about, but he he sort of mostly had a design by the the time that I showed up almost entirely. So I'd, I'd seen a little bit of that, and then I'd been involved in a, a, a little bit of some robotics work at, at my, my job professionally. But my first robot that I built was the Crusher Chomp, which also was not a great robot. I have a lot of affection for that design, but it was not a good battle bot. <laughs> so, so that being your first, you know, your first major bot, um, what was it like then competing at, for the very first time, presumably at BattleBots? Oh, it was intimidating and also sort of, um, 
I, I ended up a little bit bitter <laughs> uh, because because when I talked on the phone to them, they said, all right, well, we'll take you, but your robot better look really cool and have like multiple modular weapons and it can't just be like this box and it can't just be some boring spinner. I said, okay, all right, I'll build something cool and interesting. And of course, um, it got destroyed by, by Ice Wave. Um, so that was that was a little a little harsh, but it was really cool to be there. It was interesting to see. You know, this is obviously a place that a sport that's been going on for a long time that has its own culture that I was just stepping into as a totally totally new um, person. And you know, it's it's good to see something that you worked on really hard, like make it at least to the point of like, okay, yeah, it did get done. Um, even if it doesn't make it in the sense of like being successful. So now that you, you've kind of been around the block now for a while, what do you love about combat robotics so much to, to keep going? It's really fun to build something that's all your own. So most of the, you know, products that I work on at work are are these big group projects like so for instance the clock is a is a product that i've designed a couple of sub assemblies for but i couldn't possibly do the whole thing myself and and i also only have sort of this one piece of it but with a robot you know you get to make all of the decisions and that's intimidating but also really cool to have the whole system um in in your brain and what what do you think asha I mean, a lot of it's just like the addictive nature of competition, you know, just yeah. try and, and, and also having, I mean, in my life, I like having challenging projects and it's really hard to beat trying to build, you know, combat robots as uh, this kind of never ending challenging project. <laughs> and specifically sort of like not the easy road combat robotics, I would say we, we, we try and we try and do some Oh, I, I shouldn't say anything more. I might, I might get rude. Um, so uh, we, we have a question from Tom Brisburn who asks, given that Yasha competed with the judge back in the Comedy Central days, if we get into a hypothetical mode now, who would win in a hammer fight between the judge and Chomp? I mean, I think once you get into the world of hammers, you start really realizing how advantageous weight and size is for a hammer swinging robot. Oh. And the fact that the judge is 340 pounds and another like half a meter longer is just too big of an advantage that the judge would probably win. It also carries a lot more armor. Chomp. I don't know about new chomp. I think new chomp. Oh, against the legged chomp? Legged chomp, I think. Oh no! Yeah, like it's five hundred pounds. If you go with my previous statement of weight and size account for a lot with hammers, the, that's one of the reasons why Legatron is such a fun idea, is because it weighs five hundred pounds. But if the question is uh, two hundred fifty pound chomp versus three hundred forty pound judge, it's probably the judge, and largely just because the bigger a robot is, the more it can swing the hammer in a stable and effective fashion. I know everyone loves to laugh at chomp flipping upside down, even me. Uh, but a lot of that is just because we're really shooting for the moon with the hammer energy and with a smaller, lighter robot, it just perturbs the machine due to conservation of angular momentum. There's just no, there's no getting around it. And that's can, just been a. You can swing the hammer or swing yourself. And if you imagine <laughs> like you as a human being holding a, you know, two pound hammer in your hand, basically you only swing the hammer. 
But then if you imagine yourself as a human being holding a 100 pound hammer and trying to swing that, you'll realize that your body will, will also move in opposition. And that's, that's what assuming, assuming you're strong enough to throw it. And, and Chomp is like an exceptionally strong human being that can provide ludicrous torque on a hammer arm. If you watch old videos of, uh, teams of people driving railroad spikes, it's quite impressive. Those uh, railroad spike drivers, their feet come off the ground a couple inches uh, when they swing. <laughs> I think um, I I still have to swing my body when I uh, throw a two pound hammer. So <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine <laughs> when you extrapolate from there. Um, so, you know, kind of getting into the earlier wheeled version of Chomp, we have a listener question from a, a, a young little known builder named Will Bales. Okay. He wants to know, so how exactly do you beat bite force asking for a friend? Well, uh, in our I mean, case, we put a hammer in his weapon chain. Will could substitute that for a rake, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think realistically, one thing that is appealing about there, there aren't many advantages you get if you aren't building a spinner. You just can't compete with the the kinetic energy in a, in a spinning weapon. It's just they have so much time to add so much energy to that blade. So, so you're starting off at a disadvantage, but one advantage that you do have is that most people put so much of their energy and time into defending this little narrow band at the bottom of their robot. And sometimes they forget that there are robots that attack other parts. And so if you can, you know, the, the sort of general version of the answer to this question is build a robot that can attack some, some part of robots that people usually don't worry about. Although now that that fight has happened, people worry more about their top armor again yeah i could also give will the old school answer which would be um finish your robot two months before the event and practice driving it instead of finishing a robot two hours before the first fight but hey yeah <laughs> <laughs> don't bring your batteries up <laughs> poor will uh yeah time will tell if he'll he'll finish his cad uh before the uh, event this year <laughs> He's got um, extra time now with the with the lockdown. Yeah, you would you would think, but yeah, uh. we feel his pain. We're always behind. Also, we have not finished our cad. To be fair, <laughs> and I have no cad, so I can't really talk at all. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, a lot of that's on me. I gotta get on it. <laughs> um, so Travis Arp wants to know what match has Chom taken the most damage, and how difficult is the bot to repair? That question was also seconded by Sam Waldo Waldman, who is also interested in that answer. Probably Yeti. Um, Chomp just hasn't, so so version two of Chomp, Hammer Chomp, just hasn't ever taken that much damage. Version version one of Chomp, Crusher Chomp, uh, is the Chomp that has taken the most damage, which was the fight against Ice Wave. We didn't have, um, we, we had enough weight for a little bit of titanium armor all around that robot, but the a problem with that robot it was was it was just so big, which made it very stable and drivable. But then you have this bigger perimeter that you have to armor, and we had this plan to do these overlapping titanium shell plates. Except when we went to do the front corner panels, they the the bending machine that we wanted to use to bend them had a very um, sharp die on it so and and we didn't know like the direction that the sheet was in and so we tried to bend 
that panel and we just broke that piece of titanium. Ooh. And it was like a couple days before the event, like, oh my God, what do we do? So we ended up making that front corner panel out of aluminum, out of like, I don't know, 16th aluminum, something awful, right? So it was essentially tissue paper. And so I sort of got into that. And then from that opening, just proceeded to rip open the entirety of both sides of, of, uh, and, and was able to do so because, and I, I think this is a, a design decision that, that I like, all of Chomp's wheel modules um, for both of the wheeled versions of Chomp were independently powered and driven uh, and controlled. So even when one wheel module gets destroyed, all the rest of the wheels keep keep driving. So <laughs> that meant that they all sort of had to get wrecked before uh, the bot stopped moving. Yeah, but the, 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 the current version of Chomp, Yeti, I think you're right, Yeti is probably the most damaging fight um, because Yeti's drum happened to be at just the right height to, to cut oh. the connection between the upper and lower armor halves. But uh, so far, so so far, we don't know exactly how hard it would be to fix a really damaged uh, wheeled chomp. Um, we tried to make it relatively easy by making the wheel modules completely swappable, but we didn't ever have to do it. So who knows? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The uh, in the Yeti fight, the armor. So first of all, we the the hammer armor. I think maybe got caught. Um, but then also just the armor itself um, is attached to the frame with shock isolators with these these. Um, polyurethane rubber shock isolators. And I think a bunch of those got um, like fractured or broken. So we just, we, we have a water jet in our shop, which is so, which is such a great machine. And we just, we, we cut some more shock isolators. That's awesome. That's a, that's a handy thing to have around. <laughs> We're very, very lucky. One of the big perks of our job is, um, they have this this revolutionary thought that hey if you're using the shop on your own materials and your own time and you're making your learning mistakes um, on your project then when it comes time for the work project you'll be better at your job and you won't make those mistakes on the on the work time that's brilliant and what a way to really lovely. people to you know work on their own things I, that's that's really a, a great environment yeah yeah it's a super great place to work I. I feel very, very lucky. So we now have a question from a six-year-old fan sent in by Leah Nepper, who asks, how did you build your self-writing mechanism? Afterthought. <laughs> we crossed our fingers and thought maybe the hammer will flip us back over, but Chomp was kind of tall and awkward. So just I like those eyelets. They just would like, they'd get unbent. Um, it was actually kind of advantageous just how flippy floppy Chomp was, Chomp number two, uh, uh, Hammer Chomp was in getting up. And one fight that we had one year, we also had like controller issues. I don't know what was going on. We were like losing, we were losing radio, but we were trying to self-write with a more sort of controllable and predictable um, system that involved pistons inside of the hammer axles. And our opponent, which was Warrior Dragon, the Waiachi one that's got the sort of Sounds right. yeah semi full body spinner and semi flipper, um, they would just like sit underneath us um, in just the right spot to make sure that we couldn't push far enough to to right ourselves because it was very predictable just what we needed to do in order to get up. And so then we actually went back to using the little eyelet um, things on the sides of the hammers. Partly because 
people kind of couldn't get in our way um, because it was it's it's hard to mentally model what happens when Chomp gets up. All right, so I would like to talk to you guys about 2020 Walker Chomp. Um, so can you please describe Walker Chomp to our listeners? So I think the first so so there's a lot of things to describe. It's sort of essentially two robots, the, the bottom, which is the movement base, and then the top, which is the weapons. But I think a big section of this should, should just be devoted to Yasha talking about the legs, because <laughs> this was always an idea that Yasha's had of, of building this walking robot. And he did this, poured his heart and soul out into designing those leg modules. So Yasha, tell us all about it. Well, part of the, you know, part of doing this robot at all is just to, to do something that's difficult. Like <laughs> we're not insane. We know if we wanted uh, to make an effective battle bot, we would just make a vertical spinner and finish it ahead of time and then practice and learn to drive it. And then that would be our best chance. Instead, we're doing something really hard that will probably fail spectacularly, but will be way more interesting. Uh, anyway, the, um, the legs, uh, the first thing I think about when I think of legs is like, they're just going to get broken in BattleBots. It's just such a violent environment. You know, someone's going to flip you and you're going to land on your legs and all the, all the actuators are going to break or a spinner is going to just hit them even glancingly and it's just going to break all your actuators. And so the first question is how the heck do you make legs that uh, can survive uh, the BattleBox at all? And um, the answer we're trying is uh, servo pneumatics, which is not a really well-served uh, uh, engineering specialty. Um, air is compressible and um, it doesn't obey normal control laws like electrical servos do, but it has a few advantages. It's, it's extremely power dense and you can just back drive a pneumatic actuator just brutally and it, it has no ill effect. It just compresses the air inside of it. So we're willing to face the other challenges, i.e. controllability and precision uh, presented in servo pneumatics and also just the lack of availability of um, components, just to give it a try. They're also lightweight, which is, you'd think with 500 pounds, we have an infinite weight budget and we really, really, really don't. We're just like lightening every single darn thing, but but pneumatics, pneumatic cylinders are lightweight. Yeah, it, it, it's, 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 both, it's power dense in both size and mass and, um, it's not very energy dense. A, a big, a giant compressed gas cylinder <laughs> will be lucky to make chomp uh, jitter around for three minutes. But hey, uh, we're gonna we're gonna give it a shot. Um, so I, I spent some time trying to learn about what was available with servo pneumatics, and um, there's only really two companies actively competing in the field: uh, Festo, the big German company, and their solution is appropriately German. It's just so complicated and it's like three boxes per axis and and there's also a, a company out on the east coast uh infield uh infield uh and they make servo pneumatics infield technologies they make servo pneumatics and uh they are are our fantastic sponsor for this machine because the but with uh each leg is three degrees of freedom this is kind of the what I settled on and um, there are six of them. So that's 18 axes. And uh, no matter how much the servo amp costs, that's going to add up. And they sponsored us with, uh, with valves. And so hopefully we'll finish this thing and have a pretty good um, representation of their technology. Specifically <clears throat> the S2 cylinder positioning system from Enfield, which we, yeah, we all, kinda... I mean, 
it's an all-in-one device it's it's you know it, it is the valve and it's the controller you you uh you send it a signal and it listens to the feedback device and it closes the loop all internally um so far they've been pretty great um and so i designed this three degree of freedom leg that you know i think is reasonably survivable and it's shock mounted into the chassis and uh and then from there we designed an absolutely enormous robot around it because even I felt like I was designing the legs a little small. You know, you look back at the old days, look at something beautiful like Mechadon and those big legs, and you think, well, that, that looks great, but those will totally get chopped off by a spinner. So we need legs that we can enclose in, in some kind of armor. The hoop and, skirt. Yeah. I've been wanting to do the hoop skirt for like years and years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it has a hoop of armor around it. And it just, everything weighs so much and everything is so large. Uh, it's a real challenge. And even though the legs, I think are, the legs are kind of disappointingly small, if you ask me, but uh, still the robot is just, will be the biggest robot it's probably cute. to enter I the it's a layout For so much time. The other thing is, so in the in the middle of it, the, the bottom robot, which is sort of the hole in, in like a tank parlance, right? You have the hole in the turret. So, so we have a hole on a turret and we have a big, big bearing between the two so that when the, the turret part throws the hammer, uh, it doesn't just snap off from the the whole part of the robot. And so laying out this robot with six legs and a giant bearing in the middle, um, it's just it's just a big robot. <laughs> <laughs> um, just to get back to the precision issues. So I um, just to give you a little bit of background on me, I do um, live event work and specifically custom scenic fabrication work. Uh, so pneumatic actuators is something that I played with for a very long time, mm -hmm. um, just because that's how we like to get our scenery to stop in the middle of the stage and then, you know, keep rolling in the middle of the stage. Um, but one of the things that we always struggle with in my industry is that precision, that ability to like know consistently how much pressure you're going to get to your leg, how much pressure you're going to get to your pad every single time how exactly like i know you haven't had a ton of time to, to practice or experiment with that um but how much control is is this versus a wheel like are you able to really reliably turn left with it or is it kind of a yeah it turns left but we don't exactly know how much i you know the the thing has not been on all six of its legs yet we have we have seven legs completed and we have you know one of them has been our test leg for a long time and our software team has been working on the you know inverse kinematics and all of the control tooling that, that goes around it there's a lot of work in all that and yeah. uh the the chassis has just been wired up recently uh with all of its communications from the main computer and um I, I, we might we might be one day to two weeks away from putting the thing on the ground and having it walk based on the controllability of the legs i i would assume that it, it will be pretty precise at turning and whatever you want it to do because the legs themselves are quite precise. So the, 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 the big difference between what you're talking about and these servo pneumatic S2 positioning systems from Enfield is that they explicitly have sensor feedback and close the loop on positioning themselves to, uh, to where you have said to go to. So instead of just saying, oh, I'll put a pulse of air in it and see where it ends up, you know, which is which is the case with with most uh, pneumatic cylinders, they, you know, there's there's like a valve on each side and 
the the system lets air in until you're in the right spot um, and and has a feedback system that knows okay that was it that's the right spot you know slow down um, stop right there so so we wouldn't try it if we didn't have a servoing um, um, sensed positioning system yeah yeah I think um, the fast way of saying that is it's this, this fully closed loop servo positioning Right. So, so similar, I guess, more to a hydraulic like closed loop positioning system. Um, yes. Than what you would similar to, yeah. And we, we consider hydraulics quite a bit. That might be a question for later, but we definitely uh, consider no, hydraulics. That actually was going to be my next question. Calvin Eba from Mad Catter team. He wants to know why you decided to use pneumatics over hydraulics for the legs. I, I, I've had some experience doing servo hydraulics. Um, it's just a world where people are way, way less concerned with weight. There just aren't very many small servo hydraulic options out there. Everything is heavy. Also, I don't really like being covered in oil all the time. And no matter how much you tell yourself that's not going to happen when you're working with hydraulics, that is absolutely going to happen. It's going to happen like every other day. So <laughs> the, the air is cleaner. And also the, the, the hydraulics do not give you the um, back drivability. If you if you uh, you know flip a hydraulic legged robot over and it lands on its legs, all of that load, uh, you know the hydraulics just are are are, are like rigid members. They're going to um, transfer that load right through to the frame, and uh, whereas the pneumatics will compress like springs. Yeah, that's. Um, I'm super excited to see this work. I'm. I don't think I'm the only one that's thinking that, but this sounds very interesting to watch. Um, all right, I'm excited so, to see it work too. <laughs> yeah, right. By the way, I want to say thank you for like incorporating into your design for the hoop skirt, uh, you know, visibility for the audience because I think everybody's going to want to watch those legs skittering around. Um, and I know from a structural standpoint, that's not exactly ideal. So uh, as a fan, thank you for for kind of giving us that peek into everything that's yeah. moving and working down there. We'll see. The turret will obscure some of it. The turret is sort of disappointingly giant, um, but I, I think you'll still be able to see a lot of the legs move. I hope. Yeah, we, we um, committed early on to making the legs visible, and we're glad we did. Even though you're right, it does it does kind of leave them a little exposed. But since a lot of the opponents are spinners, you can you you have a better idea about where the attacks are coming from. I feel really good about the hoop skirt plan. I mean, I, I, I've I've always felt really good about it for any any robot, any sort of control. But we there, there was an early idea of it that was just like pipe, and you just hold the pipe at the right height, like like you're, you know, a big brother, with your hand on the forehead of your little sibling who's trying to punch you. Um, but but you know, we we ended up with something that's more like traditional AR plate. So Matthew Cahoy wants to know, what's the biggest challenge you've run into building the chomp parts so far? Weight. Do you agree? Yeah. With, do you think weight? Yeah, weight. And um, with the legs, it was kind of, you know, I've done a lot of machining in my days, but doing, um, doing you know, those kind of quantities was pretty painful. Like a lot of the parts were like 30 each, you know, for things that appear on the legs four times and, it, it was a grueling like month period where all I was doing was making chips on the milling machines. <laughs> I thought it was going to kill me, but um, that that might have been the hardest challenge was just making that many parts, and also making them light enough. Weight is is just miserable uh, on this robot for sure. That's a good segue into my next listener question from Bloodsport teammate Seth Schaefer 
who wants to know how much more weight is in the hammer this year versus 2016 chop? Oh, you have hit on a sore nerve. <laughs> uh, <the laughs> Hopefully is... lots more. Hopefully a lot more, but maybe hopefully, hopefully a... a lot more. Yeah. So right now, I think the design is overweight by something on the order of like 40 pounds. And that's with like a tissue paper armor for the, the top for the turret. <sighs> Those that weight has to come out somewhere, right? And yep. so so the answer is we'll we'll see. We would really like it to be a much heavier hammer. Yeah. I mean, I think we're going to aim for 25 pounds, which would be like four times as heavy as original Chomps hammer. All right. Um, all right. So we have a question from Corey Nog, who asks, can we see the new Chomp? There's a little winky face emoji that comes after that. Uh, but really, I'd love to hear more about the tracking technology that you're incorporating into walking Chomp. The tracking technology will be the, honestly, will be, Likely this year, at least, the same um, LiDAR, lidar that we've used in the past. Um, so it's it's a, a 16 beam um, uh, sort of segmented view out of the world and uh, gives distance returns. And we'll try and aim at the thing that's the right size to be a robot and that's moving towards us. We've talked about trying to be more sophisticated than that, but our software team has so much to do just getting the legs working that I, I don't think that that will be much of an improvement from last year. Yeah. I think the, the, the significant improvement will be that last year, the, the, the LIDAR targeting system was, was the software team did a great job on that, but trying to steer a skid steer robot uh, is a really tricky controls problem. You're transitioning between a couple of different regimes of, uh, of control where it's, you know, static friction to kinetic friction. And it's kind of miserable. Uh, on this chomp, we have a turret and a hammer is up on a turret, which is kind of an insane idea, but it's a much easier thing to control than a skid steer robot. So um, similar autonomous pointing, but just an easier control control system, i.e. a turret motor. That makes sense. Um, all right, so we have a thought-provoking question from Hijinx Captain Jen Herkenroder, who okay. asks, when, when designing for motion on a walker, where does the inspiration come from? Do you look at natural locomotion, like insects or other animals, or is it more mathematically modeled? Natural locomotion, for sure, although... You know, there is a lot of research in uh, legged gates uh, from two legs or actually from one leg to six legs for sure. Um, and we have uh, we've looked at a lot of that, but there there is a very simple gate, which is very popular with six legged robots. And that's the statically balanced tripod gate where you're always using three legs to keep uh, those three points of contact over your center of gravity. Um, it's not the fastest of the gates, but it's also the first one to try and we're, we're trying we're going for simple first that's what's our main inspiration is simple for the first iteration <laughs> of walking gate if anyone is interested all of our code is public it's on <clears throat> github.com slash contradict slash stomp so you can go there and check it out that's fantastic um thank you for sharing that with us mm -hmm. uh, so we have an engineering suggestion from huh, Captain. Right. <laughs> from Beta Captain John Reed, who writes, silly idea, 
using sensors to lift the legs individually to avoid incoming horizontal spinners. So if Chomp, Chomp's effective diameter is larger than that of the opponent's blade. It's a fantastic idea. <laughs> That's a lovely <laughs> idea. Thank you. We considered even <laughs> making a legged robot based on that idea with long legs that had fast vertical actuation. Oh, yeah. I remember, remember? that design. <laughs> yeah. I forgot about that. Well, yeah, like they're really tall, like way taller than anything else. You could just stand over it. Yeah, I forgot that. Yeah, and just lift the legs that were in danger. Um, it seemed easier to us to, uh, since the battle box is a nice flat floor, it seemed easier uh, for us just to uh, walk with the armor skirt almost at the ground and uh, do it the dumb old-fashioned way. The other not thing the is we're not going to, we aren't going to compete on speed with any of these moving robots. So in order to be, I mean, the nice thing about, say, a horizontal spinner is it kind of doesn't matter which direction you're facing so much. You can always hit. And with a hammer, that's absolutely not true. There's a single point that you can hit. So deciding to do both, we we need a way that we can have an agile hammer if we're ever going to be able to hit anything. So it may very yeah. well be the case that we spend a lot of the fight sort of planted and tracking with with the hammer when the opponent is kind of close um but uh but not close enough to hit quite yet interesting that's going to be such a different dynamic than like what we've seen in modern BattleBots so far um all right yeah, we're, kind of, so, we're, exci we're excited about having a turret it's a very it, it's a it's uh you're right it's a really different dynamic than trying to point it's a really going to be so yeah. different to compete against that you know you you really it's all about positioning now as far as driving skill goes and and that's going to be completely null and void when fighting you guys hopefully yeah we are, we thought originally about putting the turret in the belly so that the whole robot would spin and like you know all the legs would spin and stuff and then we decided that that was um that that was too hard we also had a version where the legs themselves were armored um it kind of looked like a like a hermit crab, but it was like these big coconut shields. Coconut crab is the coconut, coconut crab, crab is right for it. Yeah. 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 Like shields on each leg, but no, I think, I think the hoop skirt's the way to go. Hoop skirt's the way to go. You know, uh, I can't help but think about um, the Strand beasts. Like when you guys are descri describing the pneumatic actuation, did that have any kind of, kind of input into your design thought process? No. I, and I love those things. They're, they're, they're they're very clever, you know, all mechanical systems, and the legs are very. I think we have pictures of the legs on our site, so people can see them. They're very simple, three degree of freedom, you know, <laughs> like straightforward, designed to look kind of cool. Hopefully, fingers crossed, and um, be robust, you know, not beautiful and elegant like the strong beasts. Yeah, they. Um... You're right. The the strong beasts have that like golden ratio with the way their legs kind of like flow and rotate through through their axis. Um, but I think that the the kind of skittering effect for what you guys are doing is going to make your your tight turns and your tight movements a little bit more effective than what you would get from the strong beasts for sure. Yeah, hopefully we skitter pretty we'll fast. We'll see. I'm just I'm really scared because I know that the underside of the battle box is hollow. And I just cannot imagine the noise, you know, you're going to make when you're going across this brand new steel floor with these uh, just thump thumping legs. I, you're sticking with metal as far as the base goes, or are you going to add like a rubber to the bottom of that? What's, what's the thought process there? I think we thought for, for our own floors for testing, we'll probably put a little rubber 
foot on there. We might end up with just like a hard point for the battle box. I think that right now we've just got a tapped hole in the end. So we can experiment with, with different different sort of foot ends. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be just a crazy noise for people in that arena. Well, anybody who can be in that arena, I guess. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I wonder right, how loud so, it would be. I don't know. I'd imagine it's I mean, just because, just based on my experience, like, with 30-pound robots and shuffle drives, I can only imagine that, like, what you guys are going to generate sound-wise is going to be very loud. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. It may be gentler. It's hard to say. It depends on uh, – I think it depends a lot on how we profile the legs. But you're right. If we drive the legs – now that I think about Real hard. it, if we drive the legs into contact with the ground basically as fast as those pneumatics can go, it could be – real loud those pneumatics are fast we've thought a lot about what cool dances could we make chomp do just in addition to you know actual fighting have we have we had time to actually work on those dances no but there are a lot of possibilities (laughs) okay uh i really hope that we get like post-season video of chomp dancing um, oh, yeah. If you're not able to make it happen by by the time the, the filming happens, then uh, yeah, I look forward to that YouTube content. All right. Um, all right. So we have a question from Annie McGee who writes, which type of spinner will the new bot be able to handle better, vertical or horizontal? I think pretty similarly, probably both. Yeah, we kind of designed the hoop skirt to handle them both similarly. Um <laughs> They're both, it's it, for both of them, it's just a, you know, fingers crossed, hope it doesn't cut through the AR. Um, we feel like bent work, AR is a, well a real secret. Old... Yeah. 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 A lot of, uh, if you look at most failures under spinner attack uh, on AR frames, it's almost always where they're welded. And we've committed, we, uh, you know, Zoe's uh, father and friends up in, um, up in Seattle have worked diligently on making an AR 500 bending setup. Shout out to Hazard Factory, Rusty, Neil, Neil, anyone, anyone who's worked on the crate. Thank you. Yeah, the Hazard Factory is great. It's a it's a welding teaching shop up in um, Seattle, and they've they've been home to our uh, totally custom uh, AR five hundred bending brake that we made out of a thirty ton press. And um, once you see Chomp's hoop skirt, you'll see it's not it's not very round. It, it approximates roundness with uh, with eight sides. You know, an octagon is almost a circle, right? Um, right. But, but they just do a few bends, and uh, I think having bent corners is a lot more resistant to being opened up by a spinner than um. Than oh, so corners. much. Oh, so, so much more. That's really impressive. Uh, yeah, I love the Hazard Factory content on YouTube. Oh, good. Uh, yeah, we watch we watch the crate videos and some of the other Hazard Factory videos and kind of nerd out about it, um, you know, during the week. I should say uh, uh, the the crate for anyone who doesn't know is an acronym for Combat Robotics Armor Testing Enclosure, which uh, the sort of Seattle branch we call it the it the Duwamish branch after a river. Uh, it's nearby, built to simulate Tombstone, and they feed various armor ideas into the the tomb clone blade to see how that armor does you, it's the the tomb clone usually wins <laughs> <laughs> uh so just like real life um yeah, yeah. 
So we have a question from Texas Twister teammate, Tony Woodward. That was a lot more alliteration than I was expecting to come out of that sentence. <laughs> um, so how, how do you move a 500-pound bot? Like, have you put any thought into how you're going to transport it, how you're going to get it in and out of the arena? You know, the logistical things that you always think about the week you're actually supposed to load into the show. We do have lifting eyes um, in each of the armor supports that, that go out to the hoop skirt, and those are the, the turret will clear those. Have we figured out how we're going to lift it? Not exactly. Um, yeah, this, we have given it a lot of thought, but no solutions have really been uh, implemented. Um, there's, there's some outdoor pallet jack or pallet movers that could be modified to uh, attach to those eyes. It would be great. Uh, we just need to find some motivated people to get one and start cutting it Design up. It and yeah. Engineering. Yeah. Yeah. We have a shortage of engineering time. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. I imagine so. Um, I'm excited to see what you come up with. I'm really hoping you just build a whole other robot, you know, like the, sure. like the tombstone fellows do. That has been contemplated. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you could just take that uh, outdoor pallet mover and roboticize it. But uh, in, in reality, my, my bet is it's going to be four of the team members with big oh, poles Lord. that go through lifting chains, and we're going to just pick it up and grab it. Oh, Lord. Of... Hey, we're strong. I hope not. Well, I'm I'm pregnant, so I don't want to be on the lifting team. Yeah, so yeah. Just, <laughs> I, I thought that that didn't matter until, like, the third trimester. Well, maybe. That'll be my excuse. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like a fair excuse. <laughs> Um, all right, so Sam Waldo Waldman asks, when can we expect more reveals and testing? Just show me something getting destroyed already. <laughs> I, I agree with this sentiment. Great question. Um, things have slowed, th so, so to be totally like level with everyone, things have slowed down a lot during, during, um, during COVID. So for, for a long time, we had our darling one-year-old daughter uh, at home with us and my god that has made me admire stay-at-home parents even even more it's 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 so much uh and so we we really were not getting a lot done um during that phase her child care her, her daycare has reopened uh and she has just amazing um daycare and a couple other kids um in her class. And that has been a real blessing for us professionally and, and also a blessing for us um, in terms of um, being able to actually work on Chomp again, instead of sort of frantically trying to get our day job work done um, here and there where, where we could. So we're sort of starting back up again. Um, we hope soon, we hope we'll have cool stuff for you soon. All right, I have uh, I have some more listener questions. They are mostly about the French colonial empire, so I hope you guys studied up. Oh yeah, all right. Yeah, I've got this. the uh, The French foreign legation is uh, right next to my aunt's house in Austin. I'm fully studied up on this. This this is great. All right, the first the first question is a ten part question. Ready? <laughs> all right, no, but uh, for real, we have a we have a question from Tom Brisbane who asks, bite force aside. Whose spinning weapon, chain, or drive would you love to take out the most? Ice wave, maybe? 
Yeah, because I also have tore first chomp up uh, so much. We, we we may have some fantasies about putting the hammer through uh, Ice Wave's uh, engine, but you know, it's such a good hammer target too. Yeah, it's just up there, like a big soft aluminum, you know, engine blocks just waiting to be smashed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have flamethrowers. It'd be good. Yeah, with, with maybe an explosion to just as a chaser, that'd be pretty cool. Yeah, oh, yeah. All right, I have a question here from Shatter Captain Adam Wrigley, who wants to know, what's the best weapon type, and why is it hammers? <laughs> it's hammers, Adam, but more specifically, it's pneumatic hammers. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I love, yeah, I love all hammers, but I just, I just gotta wonder, like, what the end game is if you're not if you're not going pneumatics. I mean, so. There are a lot of spinners in the world. Spinners are very effective. I understand why people build them. I think it's interesting to build something that sort of... See, here I'm going to say something that's not very politically correct, and we'll all be in trouble. That requires, I don't know, more... More? I, I don't know. Going. I hear where you're going. You <laughs> I think it's I think it's interesting to try something that's not the same design that everybody else has. That's also the simplest design of just a couple motors for wheels or four motors for wheels and one motor for the the drum and a clutch and boom done. And and Chomp has always every version of Chomp has always been very complicated and that's obviously in some ways hurts it. But I also think I wouldn't want to. It's it's the the type of robot that I would want to build is always going to be a more complicated robot that that tries to do things in a clever way. Um, yeah. All right. I have a question from Nelly the Ellibot Captain Sarah Mollian. Great. Asks. All right. Picture the scene. It's the finale, and it's Nelly versus Chump. Okay. The bonk off to end all bonk offs. The fight goes the distance, and it's left to the hands of an all male judging panel. Lord. <laughs> Three Brian Nave clones. Oh, God. Oh, I love Sarah. Sarah I keep asks, going. Three, three Sarah, Brian Nave judges. Got it. Sarah asks, which one of us won because she's the girl? How many salty tears can I lick before I risk an overdose? Oh, Lord. I think it's like disqualification on technical grounds for... <laughs> we may be, we may be getting trolled. Bonk, bonk off might not mean what we think it means in British, in the Queen's English. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. Um, Sarah, you're great. That's my answer. So that's that's the, the answer. Then is double disqualification for failure to spin to win, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. All right, that makes total sense. So uh, I, I've been the next uh, question is it's in the same vein, but it uh, it ends it's a little bit more serious. Uh, you know, we have a so this related question um, uh, is sent from Chomp fan uh, Jonas Kurtz, who asks: Some people online are hating on Chomp. And they're also partly hating on you as well. How do you deal with that? 
I mean, so I, I think this is specifically for me. To some extent, you know, I just engage with it when I want to. I don't, I don't always, I mean, I think if I spent all my day in like hate threads or like actually reading my messages on messenger or whatever, then I would be pretty sad um, or just scared. Um, And that sucks. That's, that's really a shame that that's the price of being a woman on the internet. And um, part of it is, is uh, knowing some other builders who go through the same kind of stuff and and talking to them. Um, Part of it is often, um, one thing that's inspiring is seeing a fan who's sticking up for something or someone mm. that I think, oh gosh, I should be sticking up for that person and I just don't have the energy. And there's a fan who's doing it. And that is really, um, really lovely. Um, part of it is having a really good partner myself who is male and who is so great. So thank you, Yasha. Um, yeah, there's, of course. there's, um, I wish that I could fix the the hateful and threatening aspects of the internet. Yeah. Yeah, it, there's something definitely to be said about, you know, diving in and trying to be a warrior to, that changes the culture yourself, but, but instead, like, empowering fans to be the catalyst of the change of the culture. I, you know, in, in what you just shared before, I think that makes a lot of sense. And ultimately ends the, like lends the most value. And, and I will say I am really privileged, right? Um, I'm female and that's unusual in engineering and also in battle bots, but I'm white. Um, I'm cisgender. Um, I have a, I have a tech job I and mean, it's not like Silicon Valley tech, but I do have a tech job and I'm well paid and I have all these advantages that, that lots of people don't have. And the, I think the BattleBots community would be a better and richer place if it was just bigger because uh, people of color felt included, LGBTQ people felt included, um, all sorts of other people who just, we don't have that many of them in the community right now. Like we'd have so many cooler bots. We'd have so many more BattleBots entrants. Mm -hmm. And I have a really good and, and honestly really easy life. And so I can spend a little bit of time trying to push back on uh, some hateful stuff that I see in the community. And, and that's a lot easier for me than for someone who doesn't have all the advantages that I have. And I would like to do that to the extent that I'm able to make it more welcoming for those people. Yeah. And then for just advice for, for fans like myself, how can we be, how can we be better fans that make the sport itself and STEM just like more accessible to uh you know to women to people of color whereas in in the past like engineering is kind of seen as a as a white male dominated subject mm-hmm. uh, it's harder for me to talk to people of color um but i would say if you're male please talk to your male friends um and just say hey like we don't make these kinds of sexist jokes right or you know if we see um you know uh, look up what a microaggression is and, and read a little bit about that and try and become more aware of when that might be happening um, uh, around you. If you're in the engineering world, share your salary, tell, yeah. tell yeah. your, tell your coworkers who are, um, you know, female or people of color, et cetera, what you're being paid so that they can 
know if they're being um, hugely underpaid. Um, you know, support groups. If 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 you if you do have one of those Silicon Valley um, tech job salaries, support groups that work for um, work against inequality in our society. Um, do, like donate your time to mentoring programs. Um, yeah, that's what I be the be be the person. If if you are in a position of privilege, I think that one of the best things that you can do is being the person who says, Hey man, that's really not cool. Like that's not what we're about. And, and challenges um, a stereotype or a comment instead of having it always have to be um, the person who um, that comment is directed towards. So like, no matter what, if I say, Hey man, like that's a sexist stereotype. That's really not cool. Someone's always going to see me and say oh that woman is just such a feminazi you know but if a man says that i think it it's heard in a different way mm -hmm. and it gets through more yeah and keep it up you're doing great <laughs> don't don't get don't get too sad yourself because i think the the world is moving in a direction of progress and if you're helping with that you're doing something really good in the world and that's, I think that's the best point to make, you know, um, I think people are kind of waking up to, you know, disparity and, uh, and, and, and topics like privilege. And mm -hmm. I, you know, when you're going through hell, keep going, you know, we'll get there. And it's through, it's through personalities like, like yourself. That's really nice of you to say. Thank you. So I have a question from Nelly the Ellibot tactician and my spirit animal, Rira Granger. <laughs> Asked, okay. Being an icon of women in the sport and for engineers everywhere and a true inspiration to myself and many others, the most important question nice you. has to be, what's your favorite kind of wheels and why? <laughs> <laughs> Protected wheels. <laughs> um, I don't see why anyone leaves their wheels outside their armor. Uh, it just is like such a failure point. Um, we've always just like the, the very first wheel that Chomp ever used was, uh, a Colson, a Colson wheel. Uh, and that was just always what we used. I never actually tried anything else, but I would say a protected wheel. What do you think, Asha? She may be giving us a hard time for having legs, but I'm not sure. British humor is difficult to <laughs> grasp. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I don't, I mean, protected wheels. I'm with you. Wheels that people can't see. If you have legs, show them off, but don't show off your wheels. All right, you heard that. Uh, inedible wheels is the answer. <laughs> All right, so I have a, a question from Stephanie Zunick who asks, uh, does Zoe have any advice for a 13-year-old girl who is very interested in robotics or any advice for the 13-year-old's parents? Uh, this person's daughter is already on a, on their first robotics team and is a, uh, a huge BattleBots fan. That's awesome. Um, you've got it. Keep doing it. I would say there's a book I recommend to everybody um, called Women Don't Ask. It's by Sarah Lashiver and then an, another co-author whose name I forget. I would read that book. I would learn about um, this this thing that happens to a lot of people called imposter syndrome and try and figure out when that's going on in your brain and short circuit it. I would learn about stereotype threat, which is similar, which is sort of if you, 
if you put, say, you know, we all have we all have stereotypes. If you take um, an African American kid and say you're going to take a math test, um, you know, fill out this bubble that says your race, and you know, we're going to put you in the room with a bunch of Asian kids. Um, that that has a negative effect on test scores that you don't see if you don't ask that kid what their race is. Um, and you don't try and like remind people, hey, there's a bad stereotype about you. Uh, you see kids do the same. Uh, so learn about stereotype threat and again, try and identify when that's going on in your brain um, and, and short circuit it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, being on your first team is fabulous. Um, I didn't come to engineering till really late, which is sort of weird because actually both of my grandfathers were engineers. So it, it was sort of odd to me that it was this like career that no one had, had like that it kind of had never even risen to my mind. So I don't have the experience of being 13 years old and, and doing robotics, but I think that's really neat, really neat. All right, I have a question from bombshell teammate Stephanie Sayers, farmer, who wants to know, compare and contrast human uh, human parenthood versus robot parenthood. Hmm. Robots uh, sit a lot stiller when you turn them off. Actually, I know those <laughs> kids don't have an off switch at all. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, it's just kids are just more work, 100% more work. But also much cuter. That is very true. Jake Anderson asks, what question do you wish that you got asked more? Oh, man. That's one of these ones where the minute that we get off the podcast, I'm going to think of a good answer. Can I be your sponsor? Ah! That is the answer. Yeah. Can I sponsor your robot for $10,000? Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) I spend so much darn time looking for sponsors. I'm I'm not good at it the way that some people are, but. Why stop at 10,000 when you can ask for like 10,500, 10,700? Right, 20,000. NASCAR money. Can I sponsor your robot for $10 million? (laughs) I would would get on board with that. All right. So finally, we have a series of deeply philosophical and thought-provoking questions from BattleBot Superfan and friend of the pod, Mary Catherine Carr. Okay. Hello, Mary Catherine. Uh. Her first question, my husband wonders, has COVID-19 given you more time to work on CHOMP or has it caused more delays due to manufacturing setbacks? And if Walker CHOMP isn't finished, will Wheelie CHOMP come in its place? We're cannibalizing Wheelie CHOMP in order to build Walker CHOMP. So no, almost certainly. Um, no, we've had a lot less time. We We don't really deal with manufacturing time because we make all of our own parts except for like very off the shelf stuff like like motors um but it has cut into our time to manufacture and also our team's time we have a really great team of people not everybody on the team wants to be public but i do want to give a shout out to demeter randy evan rachel matt rusty uh dr ellen lackerman my mother both of our dads um karina neil joe um, and then I also want to give a shout out to the childcare workers who make this possible. But because of COVID-19, not all of those people are necessarily able to be in the shop as much, um, you know, making parts and, and working on the robot. 
Did I answer all the pieces? I think there was a third piece maybe I missed. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned that you were uh, going to scrap Wheelie Chomp. Yeah, yeah. We, we probably will try and put Wheelie Chomp back together in order to have a target. I mean, Chomp, <laughs> Chomp is a good battle bot stand-in because she's a battle bot. But, uh, but for now, yeah, we're taking parts out. All right. The next question is, what is your favorite kind of dinosaur? And is there a dino that embodies Chomp to you? I've answered a bunch, Yasha. You take that one. Um, I think my favorite dino dinosaur, I, I got to remember back to my childhood days. I think it was the Ankylosaurus, the one with the awesome club tail. And that might indeed embody Chomp a little bit if you consider the tail like a hammer, but um, probably not that well. Chomp's hammer is more like a scorpion stinger, but I don't know. Let's say Ankylosaurus and uh, the hammer is like the club tail. It is a pretty cool dinosaur, to be fair. I'm, I'm personally invested in this next question. Uh, what keeps you going uh, when the world gets sucky? The world can seem so bleak lately, and I feel we need some good mm. wisdom to help us through all of it. I wish I had a better answer. So, to some extent, it's we are so close on, on Chomp in particular, we should see this through. This is this is valuable. This is worthwhile. We, you know, we want to see the fruits of our labor. Yeah, I dream about Chomp's hammer breaking spinner blades and, you know, that kind of stuff. I think it's important to have novelty in your life, and that that that, that new experiences and new things are a source of happiness. And hobbies are a way that people get that right. So, you know, when you're going to work every day and on the same kind of grind um, during, during COVID, a way to break that in some way is to try and make something or, or do something. All right. If Chomp had a theme song, what would it be? Old Chomps was I get knocked down, but I get up again. <laughs> Oh God! Someone made yeah. a, an amazing. Someone on Reddit um, made an amazing compilation of Chomp falling over to that song. Uh, someone dig up that thread and, and and find it. It's just so well done. And and thank you. I don't know what new Chomps would be. Something about spiders. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, you have to watch it perform a little bit before you can really accurately give a thing like Chomp a theme, song. Uh, theme song. So after after the season, we'll have to get back to you on that. All right, the next question from Mary is, Zoe, since you're pretty much a hero to many ladies in the sport, oh, what gosh. would your superhero name be, and what would your related superpower be? Oh, man, that's very nice of her. Uh, thank you. Um, I mean, this could go so many directions, right? You could go with, like, the making the world a better place. You could go with, like, the trolling superpower. Uh, or the anti-troll superpower. Cool. Pick um, stop time. Stop time is the best. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I get a little <laughs> extra so sleep much, in the mornings. You can do so much stuff while time is stopped. That's a good point. You can do All the right. trolling. You can, do, you can steal the money. I need a good I name. Mean, you're, the, you're the nicknamer. What's my superhero name? Oh, man. That one will take some time. Z. If, if, if you are listening to this podcast on, um, and you found the link via social media, put in the comments what you think my superhero stop time name should be. 
All right, the next question for Mary is, when can we get a photo of the littlest member of Team Chomp riding Chomp? <laughs> that sounds very dangerous. It does. This is this has been discussed. She already rides carts in the shops, so it might not be a lot more dangerous. Yeah. Uh, after much testing, I think we're going to make a chair. Uh, Chomp should be able to carry like a full adult's weight. So uh, people are already requesting rides. We just have to give the little one a special the little one will need to be strapped in. The so problem that is that she'll just want to climb all over it. Yeah. Right, yeah, into the legs, yeah, which are yeah. brutal pinch points. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so a this good, is in the works, question. but there's no definite schedule. All right, the next question for Mary is, will Walker Chomp have a new name? If so, may I suggest Mama Chomp or Mega yeah. Chomp? And since I feel Chomp's favorite cocktail should be the tears of her haters, what's is her <laughs> favorite food? Mary, this is a two-part question. Um. It definitely is the tears of her haters. Uh, I think the food type would probably just be salt, right? Salt um, and vinegar oh. potato chips. Salt and vinegar, yeah. Um, no, we didn't decide. We, we thought a lot about giving Chomp a new name. Um, but it's there's so much branding involved in it. And just like we already have the Twitter and we already have the Facebook and people know Chomp. Um, and, and I do want to, I think that we got close with our, our first, hammer chomp but i do want to see that um that hammer kind of redeemed we designed that hammer to run at like 300 to 400 psi and just be insane and it turned out that with our own self weight and we weren't ever able to do a hold down system that would increase our effective weight we were never really able to swing that hammer at more than i think that we were like between like 60 and 100 psi so it, so I, I want to see, like, I want to have Chomp live up to her potential and, and, and not let her down by switching to some other robot before she's, like, really mature and, and strong and good. Yeah. Uh, no one asked about how powerful the new hammer is, but the new hammer design is uh, ambitious. It's like... 9x what we designed old chomp to be or no yeah. it's it's like it's about 5x, old chomp. yeah it's it's 5x what we designed old chomp to be but it's going to be like 10x what we actually run it at if we can Ooh. if we can run it at, at our full pressure that's a that's a spicy little fact so I had to wrap up with is there anything yeah. else you can tell us about it um what else is interesting about it i mean it's for for pneumatic hammer nerds it's a different you know original uh wheeled chomp had a had a crank hammer system yeah, which is interesting exactly. and that it could swing the hammer all the way around the robot we gave up on that uh and we put the hammer up in a turret which is awkward in some ways but also has some advantages um it it has two cylinders uh and two chains uh one pulls the hammer while it's you know going forward and one pulls the hammer back while it's retracting so it's all pneumatic i'm like old chomp which had uh, some electrical mechanism electrical in there retract. to retract so it's all pneumatic uh it's a ludicrously large displacement uh cylinder like 5x old chomp which is which you'll you'll see when you see the turret it's, it's as big it's as so a, long you know, it's, it's giant. as big as a normal robot by itself it's like a robot on top it's, of a robot. it's bigger than it's twice the length of like a lot of these small like birds so really the hope big. is that the the, the hope is that the mass, the 500 pound mass and the large diameter will let us actually swing the hammer without this thing just flipping over. Oh, we have a, um, we're going to have a slightly new logo though. 
even though we're not having a new name. Um, we're going to have a slightly new logo designed by my Uncle Roger. Thank you, Uncle Roger. How soon do we get to see that? Oh, that's a good question. Once Uncle Roger gets paid, I'm assuming. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> There'll be t-shirts. Um, it'll it'll be a good time. We'll see. Pr- probably around the time. If, if they ever film this thing, um, then, then, you know, we'll, we'll roll t-shirts out around the time that we get our own t-shirts. Well, the second you guys get those in, you let us know. We would love to share them. And uh, of course, I'm sure that we'll, we'll each be happy to, uh, to sport them around our, our COVID bubbles. All right. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I guess they won't get the most exposure, but that's probably the right thing for, for health and safety. <laughs> I wanted to, to thank both of you so much for, for coming on the show with us today. It's been such a great, you know, tour through, you know, everything that you're doing with Chomp and, and the and the ten thousand year clock and talking about the, you know the culture of the sport. We really covered a lot of ground. Um, it's been it's been absolutely wonderful having you on, and we can't wait to see Chomp in the battle box soon. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And I do just want to say one one last time, this design would not be possible for us. I mean, this is this is a a pricey robot, but um, it wouldn't be possible at all without the sponsorship of Enfield Technologies that makes those S2 cylinder positioning systems, the, the servo pneumatic systems that actuate all the legs. So if you are in a position to look at any kind of pneumatics, um, please head over to Enfield's website and give them a look. They've been so friendly and lovely um, and they're enabling walking chomp. After the break, we'll return with this week's installment of Robots Around the World. Welcome back from the break. Time for Robots Around the World. This week, we travel on over to Silicon Valley, where engineers and Edge Innovations are building a robotic dolphin, which will cost nearly $21 million each and is virtually indistinguishable from the real thing. The designers worked on an earlier project at the Walt Disney Company to build underwater animatronic animals capable of being piloted by remote control. Today, they're developing the technology for a Chinese aquarium that wants to replace all of its big underwater attractions, which could include sharks and whales, with robots. I, uh, I, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but I read this right before the beginning of the recording of our podcast. But did you know that this robotic dolphin is going to be competing in BattleBots 2020? Really? Yes, it's uh, it's a flipper. <laughs> oh, God. We should have seen that coming from a million miles away, and yet you still surprised all of us. Well done. I, I didn't see it. I didn't see it coming, but I knew as I was reading through that uh, dialogue, I could just see something brewing on Chris's face, and I knew that we were in for in for something as soon as I stopped talking. So there, there we have it. Well, I mean, if I didn't say a really good joke, what would be the porpoise? (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. What what do you guys think about this? All things considered. Uh, so I was reading the articles around this robotic dolphin and the other robotic creatures, these kind of large, 
very expensive, very delicate, beautiful animals, orcas and whales and sharks and dolphins. And the interesting thing is you're going to be able to, so like from far away, even close up, you can't tell that it's not alive. Um, like it's pretty, pretty remarkable. And they're going to be able to build cooler exhibits um, because they won't have to plan anymore for organic animals, right? So you'll be able to get a pod of dolphins swimming in a um, like a swimming pool at a mall, you know, or like a mall fountain or something like that. You know, um, you'll be able to see sharks um, inside of tiny little aquariums inside of retail stores, perhaps, you know, like um, huge whales just like on display. You can swim with them, you know, like that. It really opens up some some cool ideas for the aquarium of the future. And really at this point, there's no porpoise, as Chris, I suppose, <laughs> would say, in um, in keeping these these large animals, you know, in captivity, especially when we have better alternatives that are even cheaper in the in the long run. I uh, I hope that they branch out and begin making like a, a robotic octopus because those are my favorite animals and I would love to have one as a pet. However, they make awful pets because they're so smart and they have such a you know um, a high functioning brain that unless you literally spend hours a day like doing like puzzles with them and like brain activities they will literally do anything that they can to get out of your tank and then commit suicide but if you had a robotic octopus you would not have to worry about that and you could have a sweet 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 octopus pet um all right so i want to first comment on the reality of this situation (laughs) uh robotic octopus sounds amazing from an aquarium standpoint, um, but terrifying from any science fiction fan ever <laughs> standpoint. Octopi or octopuses, which by the way, both are grammatically correct, which is totally messed up. I know, it's true. Um, are terrifying creatures in and of themselves. They're, they can fit through any hole that's the same size as their beak. Yes. They have a beak, which is weird. And they have been known to kill sharks when they're in captivity. Have you guys ever seen that video of like the the giant uh, Pacific octopus killing that shark in its tank? In no. like what Seattle corners Earth? of YouTube do you go to, Kyle? <laughs> I go to a lot. I go to a lot of. I, I like octopus videos. Uh, I have favorite octopus videos. Um, so I will say, I, from a from a reality standpoint, robotic animals that are going to be on display in, in aquariums is a wonderful idea. Obviously, you know, what we've learned over the past few years from documentaries like Blackfish, you know, holding these large animals in captivity, especially orcas and or dolphins, you know, these very intelligent cephalopods um, is just morally reprehensible. But at the same time, I think the idea of a robotic dolphin uprising is just so scary, just (laughs) so scary. And I just don't like the fact that we've invested any money or time into that technology. Do you know? Do you know precisely how you get an octopus to laugh? No, no. How? You tickle them. I thought you guys would remember this. What? Yeah, you tickle them. Well, approximately ten tickles. Oh, <laughs> oh come on! Oh, 
just when you think Chris is going to bomb, he just turns it around. <laughs> That's about it for us today. We'll be back in your feed next Wednesday with another mystery guest. We'll see you then, folks. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>